Welcome to Rock and Roll High School. In-depth, personal conversations with the most legendary figures in the history of contemporary music. Come with us as we explore the stories behind the albums and songs that have become the soundtrack of our lives. Here's your host, Pete Ganbark. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Rock and Roll High School. My guests this week are Rod Argent and Colin Blundstone of The Zombies. Inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2019, The Zombies' career began 60 years ago when Rod and Colin were just teenagers growing up in St. Albans, England. Their songs, She's Not There, Tell Her No, and Time of the Season are all-time classics, and their 1968 album, Odyssey and Oracle, is considered to this day as one of the greatest albums ever recorded. Argent, the band Rod formed after the Zombies first broke up in the late 60s, is still heard on classic rock radio stations everywhere with their hits Hold Your Head Up and God Gave Rock and Roll to You. To celebrate the band's 60th anniversary, the Zombies will perform a live stream concert from the legendary Abbey Road Studios in London on September 18th, the same studio where they recorded their seminal Odyssey and Oracle album over 50 years ago. Don't let go of my hand now, the darkness has gone. This will be our year, took a long time to come. And I won't forget the way you helped me up when I was done. And I won't forget the way you said, darling, I love you. You gave me faith to go on. Now we're there and we've only just begun. This will be our year, took a long time to come. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Rock and Roll High School. I'm Pete Ganbarg. I'm the head of A&R for Atlantic Records here in New York, and I am thrilled today to welcome from across the pond, as they say, Rod Argent and Colin Blundstone from The Zombies. Welcome, gentlemen. Thank Hi, you. Hi, Pete. Thank you. So, so happy to be doing this today, and it's a thrill to speak with you, obviously, having grown up with your music and knowing that, you know, right now we're recording this in 2021, which is the 60th anniversary of the Zombies as a group. What an amazing milestone. How many, how many artists get to say that? I think very few in a way. And, and the thing that the, the reason if I, ha I have to say, Pete, the reason we're still doing this, honestly, is that it gives us a chance to continue to be creative and to uh, keep recording new material while loving putting all the old stuff out and reinventing it and re-looking at it and playing with as much energy uh, as we can. Put out something like our last album, Still Got That Hunger, which actually we got a call from Billboard who said, uh, we just wanted you to know that you've made the top 100 album sales with, with, your, with your new album, which is the first time the zombies have actually done that in 50 years. Wow. So, you know, so that, that, that creativity is, is, is really the reason why we're doing it. That's awesome. I mean, ironically, the zombies are probably more prolific now than you were 60 years ago, right? Well, quite possibly. <laughs> <laughs> and Rod and I always talk about this incarnation of the band when we're on stage. I think there's more energy on stage now as we approach the autumn of our careers. The autumn um, of Colin's career. <laughs> <laughs> Speak for yourself, Colin. <laughs> yes, sorry. I got carried away. Yeah, yeah. But there's more energy on stage now than, than there was then. We really love to, we love to write, to record and to play live. We're a, a touring band that tours all the time. And it's, it is a really good band. 
Well, unfortunately, you know, any touring plans have been on hold for the last 18 months Absolutely, yeah. with the pandemic, which makes this upcoming uh, event at Abbey Road more special. What are you guys looking forward to most about the Abbey Road live concert and live stream? Well, first of all, relearning the material that we have to play for 18 months. <laughs> we were talking, was it this morning, Rod? It we was cold, yeah. And we, we, we were going, the songs that we've been playing for years and years, and it was obvious that they've slightly faded in, in our memory in our memory bank. So that side's going to be interesting. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure I'm sure they'll come back. But oh, the yeah. thing is, yeah. I, I said to Cole, I said, oh my God, I went in for the first serious run through of some of the things i said i can't remember any of the harmonies you know i can't remember exactly what i played or whatever but you know it will come back i know that because when we redid odyssey in the oracle after a very long time it, it took a little while but you know it did eventually come well i heard i heard about that when you guys got together to re-rehearse Odyssey and Oracle, um, I heard that the two of you were the weak links in the band. Everybody else that's, was good, right? That's exactly <laughs> it. We thought, Rod and I were touring, and we thought, we you know, we're taking a lot of, lot of things for granted here. Chris White and Hugh Grundy hadn't played at that time for 40 years, or, or, you know, a serious professional concert. And we suggested that we all got together and played through the material. We wanted to check them out, Cole, didn't we? We wanted to check them out. <laughs> but of course, we hadn't really rehearsed because we, we were on a tour anyway. We were playing different stuff. And they had obviously put hours into it. And it was a little bit embarrassing because- It was completely embarrassing. They were note perfect. They were note perfect. And we were all over the place. <laughs> I was that. glad that they let us do the concert. I thought, they, <laughs> I thought they might try and get some depths in. Well, it wouldn't be the first time that fake zombies toured, but we'll talk about that in a second. <laughs> yeah, that's true. So going back to the beginning, I found it interesting as I was kind of brushing up on my zombies history coming into today that your fathers were both aeronautical engineers at the de Havilland Aircraft Factory in Hatfield. Is that right? That is right. And yeah. did they know each other? I don't think so. It was a very big factory. Did did they, Rod? Uh, not to my knowledge, Cole. No. No. It was a very big factory, and uh, it, the factory was in the town that I lived in, which was called Hatfield. And I think most of the people, most of the men in Hatfield, worked in that in that factory. It's it's no longer there now, but uh, it, it is sort of a coincidence. Also, uh, Hugh Grundy's father, the drummer in the Zombies. Um, his father worked there as well. So it's almost like in the 60s or 70s, if you spoke to somebody in Michigan, in Flint or in Detroit, they were working at Fords, you know, as, as the yeah, guys from absolutely. The Temptations told me everybody worked at Fords. You know, so this is the Hatfield UK equivalent of Motown. Although we lived in St. Albans, which is what? Five miles cold from Hatfield? Something like that, yeah. Uh, and my dad used to have to, you know, drive in every day. But that you're you're right. So that's where they all they all worked in Hatfield. But we all went to school in St Albans. It's a town next door. Got it. It's it, but Rod lived in St Albans. Or I lived in Hatfield. Got it. But the common denominator was that we went to one of two schools in St Albans. And then there's a little chance element then and how we met because we didn't go to the same school. Right. 
But um, right, we'll get to that in a second. But your earliest musical memory, Rod, growing up, I read that you were influenced by early R and B, via Elvis, by American jazz, via Jimmy Smith. What do you remember about being a kid and hearing music? I was always passionate about music. I always really, by the time the Beatles came out, there was a remark by John Lennon where he said that to him, the real world was music. And what other people thought of as the real world was a sort of uh, a more misty sort of environment. And, and that's exactly how I always felt. It was with music that I felt most comfortable and most able to relate. I always loved music from, and I could always somehow get a tune out of anything even before I took any lessons. And I only ever had two years of piano lessons during which I played almost nothing. So uh, you're basically, uh, you're basically self-taught. I'm, I'm pretty much completely self-taught, but, but my mother loved classical music and she got me uh, into a fantastic choir. One of the, one of the world's really good choirs with an organist who was one of the, the, the main Bach scholars. So that opened my ears and eyes to a huge amount of classical music, which was great, actually. I wouldn't have heard otherwise. My dad was the semi-pro dance band musician. He had his own band. He led his own band from the age of 17 to the age of 83. Wow. Um, uh, so I'm getting close. Now. <laughs> <laughs> not, not quite that yet. I always absolutely love music. I remember them giving me a harmonica when I was about seven years old. And I could me immediately play tunes on the scales because somehow that I saw things visually. I saw whole notes as, as sort of blocks. And then when it came to a semitone, I saw that as a sort of semi-sized uh, semi block. I, I can't really describe it, but it meant that I always knew how to construct a tune uh, sort of out, out of anything. So I don't know where that came from. But then I didn't really like most of the popular music that was around at the time. I sort of, you know, fairly, I, th I thought a couple of tunes were okay. But uh, I remember my mum and dad liked Perry Como and people like that, you know, very middle of the road things before rock and roll started. And then I remember the very day that I heard Elvis sing Hound Dog and it completely spun my world around. And I just wanted to hear the most raw rock and roll I could get my hands on for, uh, to my parents' horror for about six months. <laughs> Little Richard, Elvis, obviously, you know, in the early sun years. Well, I remember seeing an early clip of Elvis, and I can't tell you how different the cultures of America and the UK and England were at that time. It was just unbelievable. They were, they were universes apart. And to see Elvis singing at the, I don't know, the Grand Ole Opry or something, whatever one of his early things, you know, it was just like seeing a god from another planet. Uh, and and I, I remember thinking at that time, I have to actually, when I'm old enough, get some sort of band together. You know, I just have to do that. But at the same time, I, I, I think that was a fantastic time for music. I think in the in the late 50s, for instance, around 1958, you had the Miles Davis band with John Coltrane, Cannibal Adderley, and a little bit later, Bill Evans, when Kind of Blue came along. And the very first EP, because I couldn't afford the album that I ever bought, was Milestones. And I didn't know that was modal or anything at the time, but I just played it to death. And I can still sing you the opening Cannibal Adderley solo and then the Coltrane solo, then Miles. I think it was the most fantastic time for music for jazz and the explosion of rock and roll which for me was listening to black music by proxy because i'd never heard any black r&b at all and to hear some of those early things which were written by black guys 
that you know Arthur Crudup and and other people that and Big Mama Thornton who did Hound Dog of course uh, and I very soon heard those things and it I'm not the only one I mean lots of people <laughs> had the same experience you know Van Morrison Eric Burden uh, uh, and the Beatles of course and there was this hugely fertile ground in the UK going on it really was because there wasn't a division of a lot of radio stations which at the time I know in the states you had what were called race stations didn't you and quite often white teenagers would tune into to one station which didn't play any black stuff and the black teenagers would you know tune into the, the other stuff that played loads of R&B and blues and everything and a few people like Buddy Holly and Elvis tuned in to the black stations as well and you've got this cross-fertilization which I think is absolutely fantastic. I consider myself fantastically lucky to be 13 years old uh, uh, or, or I was 11 when I first heard Elvis but 12 and 13 and hearing this explosion of fantastic new R&B but you know tinted with all other sorts of influences and I thought it was absolutely brilliant. And all of that influenced the music that you would later make. So not only the influences of, of Elvis and, and Little Richard and Jerry Lee Lewis and the American stuff, but also, you know, Bill Evans and Cannonball Adderley and Miles that you mentioned, but also Stravinsky and Bach and, and the things yeah. that your mother was introducing you to via the choir. So all of these things create a very broad musical palette from which to paint. I think they did. And I never thought that we were doing anything except being the same sort of band as the Beatles, you know, because the Beatles came on the scene in 1962. I know in 64 in the States, really, but in 62, certainly in, in the UK. And two memories uh, stick out. You, you talked about classical music, modern classical music. I remember once having a party at my house and completely clearing the room when I got drunk by putting on the Bartok string quartet. <laughs> That'll do Every, it. Everybody went home. <laughs> <laughs> that, was, that was one memory. And so, you know, not my most successful party, I think. And uh, the other memory is many, many years later when I was in the States playing on an Andrew Lloyd Webber album that Gary Moore and John Heisman and other people were, were on as well. Uh, and going to see Pat Metheny in one of his very first concerts and a jazz musician that John Heisman knew had never heard of me, no reason why he should have done. And he introduced us to Pat Metheny at the end of the evening. I thought it, what I, I'd heard was absolutely wonderful. I thought it was brilliant. And he introduced us and Pat said, Rod Argent, you wrote She's Not There. I said, yeah, I was amazed that, that he knew. He said, that was the record. He said, all that modal stuff. He said, that was the, uh, in She's Not There, in the verses and everything. That's what made me think I had a way ahead to really create my form of, of a fusion wow. you know, that, 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 that I did. And I thought, and I said, oh, thank you very much. And I went away, I thought, there's no modal stuff and She's Not There. But I went back and I played what I initially thought, which is like an A minor to D seventh, and then I realized that I'd actually put um, a little modal sequence over it. And so I thought, wow, that's absolutely amazing. Well, I didn't realize, you know, but those indirect influences did so how you know, have a way of funny is that the circular influence where the Americans are influencing you, who in turn are influencing, um, you know, the later well, American jazz guys like Pat Metheny? Well, you know, I well, often, just thinking more about rock and roll and, and pop music, when we first came to America and and audiences it was a british invasion and audiences in america really loved the british bands and i honestly felt guilty because there were times when i wanted to stop the show and say 
we're playing your music. <laughs> it, you know, this is your music, not not ours. But of course, we often talk about this and we say that it's it's been through a British filter right. and come back slightly different. But it is Amer- basically it was American music. Tell the and story, it, Cole, about when we first went to the Brooklyn Fox and we were scared you know, pretty much shitless. <laughs> <laughs> when we were scared. I mean, it, it's a strange story because uh, in the summer of 64, when She's Not There came out, we were very much a local band before She's Not There. And we were um, 18 years old. And when She's Not There came out, it was a hit in the UK. And then eventually it was a hit in America. And so we were invited to go to the Brooklyn Fox and play the Murray the K Christmas show. Is that what, is that what it was yeah, called? Yeah. Yes, Christmas 64. So six months before, we'd been playing in a local rugby club, a local pub up up the road. And now we're playing with Dionne Warwick, the Shangri-Las, Benny King, um, the Shirelles. And we were a bit apprehensive going out onto that stage, but everyone was very kind and very supportive. And I think it helped that it was Christmas because backstage there was a great camaraderie. We were all away from home over Christmas, all the artists. And as I said, they were very supportive and it went pretty well. Do you remember but, the sound check, Cole? Because we were on after Patti LaBelle. We were, yeah. And and we, we saw this fantastic black rhythm and blues voice and we thought, oh my God, we've got a, you know, we've got what, to I always, what I always called five skinny, you know, 19-year-old English kids getting up there. They're going to hate us. Uh, but they didn't, did they? No, and and, and we, Patty well. became a real friend, didn't she? Yes. Uh, on that show. I mean, fancy for us coming straight from the UK, 18 or 19 years old, and we had to follow Patty LaBelle. And didn't she used to do a great version of Danny Boy? Oh, yeah. I mean, she did, and she yeah. brought the house down. And then when she finished that, then they shoved us on from the side of the stage. Yeah, that's a, that's a tough it. act to follow, that voice. It Gee, is a tough was. act to wow. follow. But And those Murray the K shows, you guys were doing up to seven shows a day, weren't you? We were. And it opened on Christmas Day, so there was no, you know, you weren't eased into it. We yeah, were, talk about, we're 3,000 miles away from Right. Talk about a baptism by fire for some, uh, for some teenagers. But it, let, let's go was. back to the formation of the band. Rod, originally it was you and Paul Atkinson and Hugh Grundy in 1961. Talk about your cousin Jim and the influence that, that he had locally with his band and eventually what happened that uh, Colin and Paul Arnold joined the band. Well, throughout all my early years, Jim was an enabler and, and a complete sort of mentor. And uh, he was four years older than me. And so when I thought I didn't like rock and roll at all, the only thing I'd heard was a couple of Bill Haley things, which I thought were sort of OK, you know, but, but it, it was down at Jim's house. Um, he's my cousin. So I lived 400 yards away. I would walk down the road and go and hang out with him. And I always looked up to him. Um, and, uh, he said, well, if you don't like that, listen to this. And he was the one that, that played me Elvis singing Hound Dog. And, and that's what turned my whole world around. And very soon after that, I went to see Jim. He had one of the first electric bands in, in the South of England. Uh, that was the Blue Tones? The Blue Tones. And it completely blew me away, actually. I thought it was absolutely fantastic. Um, and the time did come when, when I was 15, I wandered into another form room at school and there was Paul Atkinson, who I didn't know, in the corner 
playing folk guitar, just playing. And I thought, he sounds like his rhythm's really good. And, and I said, uh, can I, I introduced myself and said, do you want to be in a band? And he said, yeah, I don't mind. <laughs> I said, okay, right, that fantastic. Easy. So that evening, that evening, I went round to my friend's house. So I often used to pop round and we used to sort of hang out a bit. A guy called Paul Arnold, who went to this other school that Colin went to. And I said, how's that bass coming on that you're building? He'd never played a note of anything in his life, but he was building a bass. He said, it's just about finished. I said, that's fantastic. I said, you can be the bass player. He said, well, look, I've got a mate at school who sits uh, behind me, just behind me, because his name was Arnold, A, and Colin was Blundstone B. And he said, he, he plays guitar and sings a bit. I said, bring him along, bring him along. And, and then I thought, we need a drummer. So that Friday, I went, the school had a cadet corps, an army cadet corps. And I, I watched them walk, um, walk past, march past. And the guy who I thought had the best sense of rhythm on a military side drum was Hugh Grundy. And I walked up to Hugh and said, do you want to be in a band? That was the beginning of the band. It was probably about two weeks later that we had our first rehearsal. Jim, as always, was the mentor. He drove me there. He got all the Blue Tones equipment, the amplifiers and everything. And we set them all up. And I was supposed to be the singer. And Colin was playing rhythm guitar. So, you know, we, we, we banged about for a little bit. And I, we, Colin and I both thought it sounded pretty good. And then... We had a coffee break and I wandered over to a beaten up old piano, completely out of tune, and started playing Nut Rocker, the uh, Bee Bumble and the Stingers um, thing <laughs> that was a hit at the time. And Colin came running over and said, that sounds fantastic. You've got to play piano in the band. And that really confused me because I thought at the time, you know, the, the, the template for British bands was sort of the Shadows, you know, which was a, Richard, like a, right. a, a guitar uh, group. And I thought, no, this is not right at all. But then a few minutes later, when we, when we had another coffee break, Colin sat down, started playing an old Ricky Nelson song. Well, it wasn't old at the time, it is now, but, um, <laughs> and uh, started singing it. And I thought he sounded fantastic. And I went up to him and said, listen, I'll play the piano. You you be the lead singer, and we can and we can you know put harmonies behind you and everything, and, and and I'll sing occasionally, but you know you can you can be the lead singer, and that was the band. Unbelievably, Jim showed Hugh Grundy the very first kick drum and and backbeat that he'd ever played, and to be fair, he had it within five minutes, you know. So he Jim, was playing Jim, were you talking about your cousin Jim Rodford who passed away a few years ago, but who was such a key part of this story. Colin, is it true that when you first met Rod, you had two black eyes and plaster over your nose? Yeah, I played a lot of rugby when, when I was younger and I'd broken my nose really badly and also got two black eyes. So I was covered in plaster. And in fact, I think I, I would have fitted very well into a band called The Zombies <laughs> that, <laughs> looking at me at that time. We hadn't found that name yet, but uh, maybe that's where the name comes from. But when I first met Rod, he's told me since that I didn't know him. And so we were standing at, on a corner waiting to go and rehearse, but I didn't know him. And he was thinking, 
Oh God! I hope he's not one. Of the I said that to Jim. I said that to Jim. There's a bloke standing like there, I... but good God, he looks terrible. I know. I look like I'd either been in a big fight or a, or a road crash or something. So originally, um, the name of the band was the Mustangs. What made the Mustangs yeah. change their name to the Zombies? It had uh, Paul Arnold as the one who came up with the name, right? It's true. How long yeah, were the Mustangs for, Cole? Three uh, days. Two, 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 I was going to say two weeks. And then actually I came up with an even worse one, I seem to remember, the Sundowners. That, that was definitely a couple of days. We were desperate because there were lots of other bands called the Mustangs, we realised, so we needed something else. And there was a film called The Sundowners with Robert Mitchum in it and... Um, a, a bit like Carr, The Searchers. A bit like The Searchers. Right. A bit like The Searchers. I thought, well, let's try that film. And then Paul Arnold came up with the zombies and everyone liked it except me and i'm not sure i i'm actually i had no idea what a zombie was and that there was no zombie culture in those days no zombie uh films no zombie magazines i hadn't got a clue i think rod had a rough idea what a zombie was i'm not sure i know what a zombie is now <laughs> <laughs> i sort of knew it was a you know it was a, a someone who was put to work in haiti you know, uh, by uh, after they they died, etc. Et I sort of vaguely knew that, but I thought it was a great idea because I thought that a bit like John, Paul, George, and Ringo, that that becomes the Beatles. You don't think of Beatles or even a play on words. You know, you just think of the four guys. I thought if we were lucky enough to get some sort of recognition, then people would just associate that with the with the the five of us. So Paul came up with the name the Zombies, and then shortly after that, ended up leaving the band leaving the, the zombies with the name and yes, uh, became a physician, right? He did. He, he wanted to be a doctor and he had to study very, very hard and he just wasn't able to come to rehearsals. And a strange thing happened then. This other guy turned up and I've never worked out who asked him or where he came from, but his name was Chris White and he came up to rehearsals for about six weeks. And it makes me laugh because the bass player and the drummer are usually very, very tight. You know, they're a little team all to them, uh, themselves. And after about six weeks, Hugh Grundy came up to me and he whispered in my ear and he said, who's this bloke who keeps coming in and playing <laughs> bass guitar? And they never spoke. It was, it, it was six weeks and they hadn't spoken. And he had no idea who he was. But, I but think Hugh, by then I'd spoken to him, you know. But Hugh had, had a girlfriend who lived oh, next door. So whenever there was a break, instead of chatting with us, he'd whiz round to his girlfriend's house. We had to, this was our rehearsal place. We had to keep Hugh, our drummer, engaged in any conversation when we were talking about rehearsals. As Rod said, if, if he felt neglected... He would just run next door to his girlfriend. So, so how did Chris White find the zombies or how did the zombies find Chris White? Strangely enough, Chris came round to my house about two years before and knocked on the door. I don't know how he knew me or anything, but he said, I hear you play some piano. I've got a, a dance band where I play upright bass. Do you want to join it? And I thought, I thought to myself... I don't want to be in a dance band, you know. So uh, I said no at that time. But then I mentioned his name to a guy that was involved with us at the very beginning called Terry Arnold. And he went to your school as well, didn't he? He did. Well, Chris White did as well, yeah. Yeah. And, and, um, and I think he knew Chris through, through school. And he said, when Paul was leaving, listen, um, he was Paul's brother. And he said, I know a guy who's a good bass player. 
He said, why don't you try him out? And that's how Chris came along. Oh, that's that's the first time I've known that. that what was that, 60 years ago? Yeah, I'll I never I'll, knew. I'll tell you some more stories in a few years. <laughs> yeah, that would be great. I'm sure there's so much I've missed over the years. I had no idea how he turned up there. So everything after that seems to, you know, from, from my... Uh, from my 30,000 foot outsider view here, seems to have gone very quickly where you guys started playing gigs as the zombies. And then you entered a contest called the Hearts Beat Contest where the prize was a recording contract with Decca Records and you won. And 250 pounds. The thing was, we, we had in, in that two years or two or three years, we had built up a big local following. And for instance, at Collins Local Rugby Club, which was one of the first gigs we ever managed to get, we were the interval band to a dance band, and there were about 15 people there that day. And we built it up to the extent that they had to build a marquee onto the thing to take the four or 500 people that would that would eventually come. And there was just a generator there. But, you know, we, we built up in a very local way. We built up um, a, a big following. Playing covers? Playing mainly yes. covers, but even then, there were a couple of, you know, that, that song that I wrote, the first song I ever wrote was It's All Right With Me, which we did on the first uh, EP, Cole. Mm, sort, of, yeah. sort of rock and roll song. That was the first song I ever wrote. And She's Not There was pretty much the next one, wasn't it? Because we did that for the, re, the recording it session. Was, um, we did mostly play covers. And then when yeah. we won this competition, one way or another, we were introduced to a producer called Ken Jones. And we were having a chat with him about two weeks before the session in Decca Studios in West Hampstead. And just as an aside, he said, for the session, you could always write something. And then he went on talking. It wasn't a big deal. He went on talking about other things. And I didn't take that much notice. But Rod and Chris certainly did. And they went away. And about two days later, Rod came back and he'd written this song. And it, and it was She's Not There. And I think we all knew it was a special song. But, but may, I don't know, maybe if Ken Jones hadn't said you could always write something for the session, maybe it wouldn't have happened. Wow. But we were going to record and, Summertime, weren't we? And we, which yes, on right, the, the Gershwin song, Summertime, yes. that you later did record. We yeah. did. But She's Not There, it seems, was written to order because Ken Jones casually said, hey, you may want to write something for the session, right? Absolutely. Yeah, in a way, yeah. I had written actually one for the Blue Tones, which I've completely forgotten about, which many yes. years later, and they actually recorded it at Olympic Studios. I couldn't believe that when I found that out. And it only exists now on a, on a cassette. And it's a very Beatles-derived song, because as I said, the Beatles came out in 62. I think I wrote this one in 62 as well. But apart from that song, yeah, there was one song that we did on stage and we did it on the uh, competition as well didn't we Carl? it's all right with me i can't remember because a lot of things happened at the same time yeah but i remember my overall feeling was that i didn't know that you wrote songs i yeah. thought musicians had to go to songwriters i thought it was a you know a very definitely different job career career to, to and, <laughs> and i thought we would have to go to songwriters but of course the beatles changed all that because they wrote their own songs, and now everyone knows you can write your own songs. But I was deeply shocked when Rod came uh, to rehearsal with She's Not There. I, I, I had no idea that he could so do what, what did Ken Jones think of She's Not There when you showed it to him? He, he, he loved yeah, it, actually. he liked it, yeah. Uh, and he liked the one that Chris had written, which was You Make Me Feel Good. And my feeling always was that in that first session, when we recorded both of those songs, that we should 
have kept You Make Me Feel Good for the follow-up to She's Not There. I, I think it was far mm. better than the follow-up that we actually had. Ken was saying, which one shall we put out, wasn't he, at the time? He was. And of course, in America, the follow-up to She's Not There, I, I think, was Tell Her No. Yeah. But we had a, a different follow-up Absolutely. in the UK. There was huge pressure from Decker. I'm sure they did it to all bands. If you had a hit record, they wanted another hit record in six weeks. They wanted that out there. Yeah, that, that hasn't changed, <laughs> by the way. For us, it was... For us, it was and our man. Yeah. <laughs> well, for us, it was very yeah. difficult because we were touring, we were working the whole time. And also, Rod and Chris didn't have a backlog no. of material. These were amongst the first songs they'd ever written. So we were... If right. they say, we need a song, they, they had to keep writing to order for, for the release date, more or less. Right. So our... So with with so our I'm sorry, record, go ahead, Colin. And it was called uh, "You Make Me Feel." No, um, you make me feel good. No, no, no. That was the B side of the. Oh yeah, sorry. Oh, leave me be. Leave me be. And it's um, badly recorded, it, wasn't it? It's badly recorded, and it. it yeah. That was a Chris, Chris White, White song, song and, too, right? It, uh, none of us thought it was a hit single. I'm afraid, including Chris. Let's go back to "She's Not There" for a second, Rod. What was the inspiration for you in coming up with the song "She's Not There"? Well, very much the fact that uh, I really wanted to write something. And so I went back home and I played a couple of my old blues records. And one of the albums that I played was a John Lee Hooker album. And the first track on the album was called No One Told Me. Now, No One Told Me, I, I, I really hurry to add that the, apart from that lyric, that, that note, that phrase, No One Told Me, there was nothing in the song that, bore any resemblance melodically or lyrically to the to the record. But I thought, no one told me that trips off the song. I'm going to build a story around that. And I, I literally, I had a couple of ideas in my mind. Uh, one was that I wanted it to start in a very moody way with, with a like a, a melodic blues scale for the vocal, for the tune. Uh, and then I wanted it to develop develop on the second section into three-part harmony and I wanted it to climax on something that had a really shifting word rhythm to it words tumbling o over each other let me tell you about the way she looked the way she acted the color of her hair you know so it built up the uh, excitement and then climaxed into a major chord because the whole thing had been minor up to that point that was the musical idea in my mind I 
had no feeling or knowledge that that usually songs were written in a you know a certain pattern where you went to the middle eight and then you you know reached a chorus etc cetera, etc cetera. because uh in a way um she's not there is three sections that just build and then drop down again and start again so but lyrically i was building a story the solo in the middle was something i always wanted to improvise you know when we played that was always part of what what i wanted to do and what we did it felt as natural as anything so we included a sort of in a way a jazz informed uh, improvisation in the middle so that's how i went about it really uh, and uh, as i said earlier from pat matheny that there was a little bit of modal influence in there that that i never realized was part of it and that was as you said from uh, listening to so much miles you know early on you also wanted to introduce three part harmony which hadn't really been a thing other than the beatles we at were the always time, right? actually uh, I was always very into harmony, and I think that being in that choir from an early age made me feel quite at home uh, mm-hmm. and, and, and naturally sort of knowledgeable about where harmony went and, and felt very at home in that setting. Um, but Chris was the first guy who said, we've got to have a mic set up at the back of the band, and we have to back up whatever Colin's doing, we have to back up with harmonies. And I love that idea, but I think that came from Chris in the very first place. And and looking back on it, I think at that time, we were the only band that we knew that was doing what the Beatles were naturally doing. Although, of course, you know, I have no knowledge of the very early days of the Hollies, for instance, when they started, they, they probably had a, mm. a similar feeling about what they were mm-hmm. doing. But it made us completely unusual from uh, as far as bands around our area was concerned. You know, uh, thanks to Chris for that, I have to say. One thing that really stands out, listening to She's Not There Now, 60 years later, um, is the snare sound and the flam on the snare in the verse. And that sounds timeless to me. That doesn't sound like a record that was recorded in the early 60s. Was that something that you directed Hugh on how to hit a snare or he just did it naturally? There is a version because that's mono, because we did it on four tracks as everyone else did at that time. And when it was mixed down, it was mixed down without the the piece of drumming that you're talking about. And we thought it could be bolstered. So Hugh added that on the mix down from four tracks to one. So when it was mastered onto one track. And for me, that mono original one, which was the number one hit in Cashbox and number two, I think, in in Billboard or whatever, is a far superior version than the one that is used all over the place, even in major adverts these days, because it's stereo, without that flam, without without the, you know, that, that lovely added solidity and groove. And I think that's I think that's a real shame. Lately, we've we've tried to insist on on people to use use the original mono version because I think it's a, it's a much cooler sound. I think. Right, right. Talk about the recording session. Talk about the engineer who had been uh, a little bit too partied out from a wedding. Well, I mean, it starts off with the fact that it was thought to be very advantageous to record through the night. So we've been lucky enough to get an evening session at Decca. And when we arrived there, the engineer, who was a really good engineer, there's no two ways about that, he was a great engineer, but he'd been at a wedding all day and he was incredibly drunk. And he got 
seemed to get more drunk as the session went on, but also he was a very <laughs> he was a very aggressive drunk. And it always makes me laugh because when we were singing sort of 20 minutes into the session, this guy was screaming down the headphones at us. And I knew that this was not for me. I thought, this is this is terrible. You know, I don't know, it's in, intimidating, it's humiliating and all these sort of things. And it makes me laugh. Here we are 60 years later, and I'd already decided then that this is not for me. But this went on for an hour or so. And then, as I always say, we had a bit of luck, and he passed out. He passed out from being drunk from the way. He was flat on the <laughs> back, on his back, and four of us carried him, one on each arm and one on each leg. We carried him up two flights of stairs, and we put him in a black London taxi, and we never saw him again. <laughs> we never saw him again. But, what, was, was Ken Jones there in the room? Yes, he was, yeah. So Ken was, was acting as the producer, but this um, paralytic drunk from the wedding, he was your engineer. He was, but we had there was an assistant engineer, and he took over, and his name was Gus Dudgeon. Which is incredible. For anyone who doesn't know that, Gus Dudgeon went on to the most phenomenal career as a record producer, producing all of the seminal Elton John Absolutely. Uh, David Bowie, um, uh, many, many artists. It was your first session and his first session. And he never forgot that. He, he, was, a, forgot he, he was an assistant engineer, yeah, at the time. Yeah, he but, was but he took, as he took over, he, it, it was his first session, wasn't it? Yeah, I think so, yeah. I certainly yeah. as a, a main engineer, yeah. Yeah. So the, the first song that you guys record for Decca after winning this contest, She's Not There, goes to number one. The follow-up, Tell Her tell her No, yeah. maybe not the direct follow-up, but shortly thereafter, that was also a hit. Yeah. It seems like things were coming really easy. Was it as easy for you as, as it is looking back on it now? It felt so, you know, because the thing is you have such naivety you know, I often like to say you have all the naivety and arrogance of youth, which you only ever have once. And and you think that, yeah, I've written this song. It's going to sound great. And Colin's going to sound great singing it. It's really going to suit him. It's going to be recorded and they'll get a great sound. And it, it, it will just come out and it'll be a hit all over the place. And unbelievably, that's what happened. I mean, you, you get to know all the pitfalls of what can go wrong in every way on a recording session. But at the time, you, you've got no knowledge of that. And it worked like a charm. And so when it went to number one, we were incredibly excited. But we thought, well, this is what's supposed to happen. And, you know, we, we, we very soon found out that it doesn't necessarily work that way. But uh, at the time, we, we just thought it would. It becomes a blessing and a curse to have such success so soon and so young, as, as we'll get into in a second. But talk about, um, before we do that, talk about the influence of Burt Backrack on writing a song like Tell Her No, Rod. Well, we were on tour with Dion Morick in the UK in 1965, Cole, wasn't it? 65? Well, no, it was our first tour, so it was 64. It was, was it 64? She's Not There was being a hit in the UK, okay. yeah. Yeah, yeah. The Burt Backrack songs that she'd been recording were were beautiful and they were big hits. And I remember thinking, it's so great hearing some of these coloured jazz chords. Well, I, that's the way I thought of it at, at the time. Uh, so if there was, you know, without wanting to get too technical, if you had an E chord, I thought instead of, you know, playing the normal blues chords, and the normal blues sequences, it would be great to have some major sevenths, major ninths, and some of these really coloured jazz chords that Burt Bacharach always used. And I wanted to do a song that had those things in them. 
Sounds very simple that song, but it actually has ninths, elevenths, thirteenths in it. And, and I think the secret with any song is that it should sound straightforward and simple. It should just work, and you shouldn't have to think about any of the mechanics that go into it. But it did have those things, and and really, in a way, that was directly inspired by hearing some of the things um, from Burt Bacharach, who of course adored jazz and um, and, and and was a, a wonderful pianist himself. So when you were touring with with Dion on sixty four sixty five in the UK, you were hearing these songs. The songs themselves had become hits in the UK with other artists, not with Dion, correct? With Cilla Black and people like that. Dion had the hits too, didn't? Yeah, didn't I she think come? it was. Yeah, I think they they both had hits, but sometimes I think it was usually Cilla Black. I think at the time, wasn't it? Sometimes she had the bigger hit. But I think yeah. Dionne Warwick, right. people were familiar with her versions of the songs. With, with the tour that you did with Dion, I had heard that the Isley Brothers were on the same bill. They were. So it was the Isley Brothers, Dionne Warwick, and the Zombies? They were fantastic. And, yes, and, and the Searchers. And the Searchers, yeah. yeah. And the Isley Brothers, that was a joy working with them because, they again, they were so, so friendly. And I remember, I remember talking to uh, Ronnie Isley and saying, how does Ray Charles get that? that sort of scream sound in his voice. He said, he's not screaming. He's singing really quietly, but it's just the overtones in his voice, you know. Mm. And he he went on to, you know, demonstrate one or two things. It was a real lesson. And, and to be able to talk to those guys firsthand, you know, at the age of 19 was just fantastic. I think Ronnie Isley has got one of the most beautiful voices I've ever heard. No Absolutely question. fantastic. He sings like an angel. Yes. And also I remember Rudy Isley talking to us at great length about make sure, I must choose my words carefully, make sure about the business side of what's going on. And we were really confident that everything was very straight and, and we, were, we were fine. And he was saying, be careful. I think be you have to be careful here, Carl, yeah. <laughs> some degree. That's a good segue because you learned very soon, Colin, that there is an income disparity between members of a band who write the songs and members of a band who don't write the songs. Yes. And I had read that there was one day where you rode your bicycle to the studio and watched Rod drive uh, by in his Rolls Royce. And yes. maybe at that moment you said, well, something is not right here. There is an element of truth in that story, of, of course, and it is true in a band. And it was intensified with us because uh, the writers, Rod and Chris's royalties, came in a different income stream. It didn't go through our management company. It came direct from the publisher. Who paid and, us everything that we were due. Yes, so the they were doing really well. And unfortunately, the non-writers in the band, myself, Hugh and Paul, we were getting practically nothing from being on the road. And neither were Rod and Chris from being on the road. So it was a bit tough. The story about the Rolls Royce and the bicycle, if I might just say that 
I used to drink a few years ago. <laughs> and I used to exaggerate. And that's a good example of why I gave up alcohol. Um, Mine was a dinner, very old Rolls Royce car. It was, it and yours was a, was a beautiful <laughs> bicycle. <laughs> and I didn't have a bicycle. But I, I had a really, really old, very small, funny car, you know. But uh, I found myself on stage once telling that story and I just got <laughs> I got carried away in the moment and it ended up with him having a wonderful Rolls Royce and me having a bicycle it's well it, it makes the story better I know there's so, a little bit of writer embellishment a little bit of uh, color has gone into that story <laughs> so let, let's let's fast forward a little bit to the making of Odyssey and Oracle because obviously Odyssey and Oracle still you know so many years later is considered to be one of the greatest albums of all time so you made that album. You were feeling like you were ready to start making your own music production-wise, and Ken Jones's ideas had kind of, you know, gotten to a point where they weren't as helpful as they had been. So you, as a band, you guys go off to Abbey Road, Studio 3. You start recording in June of 1967, right after the Beatles had just finished recording Sgt. Pepper. What was that like? It was fantastic because we managed to use all the advances technically that the Beatles had forced through onto the engineers because EMI, was a, Abbey Road, was a very strange studio. They, they were a mixture of the technological cutting edge and a very old way, um, an old-fashioned way of people in brown coats and white coats um, who, who dealt on a nine-to-five basis with things very strict three-hour sessions. You would always break for lunch. If you were a minute over the three hours, other people would come in and start clearing the studio and, and doing all this sort of thing. So it was strange, but it was brilliant because, in fact, as we walked in, we realised that the reason we got that particular deal with uh, CBS at the time was that Ken was a wonderful musician. He was a great piano player himself, but he was an old-school guy. And we were incredibly frustrated, Chris and I, with the way our songs were turning out. And we felt that none of those songs actually appeared in the way that we wanted them to. And we thought, I said to Chris, look, you know, if things aren't going great for us at the moment, and if we break up, then we've got to have an album where we can get our own ideas of how these songs should sound, uh, the next songs that we write. And that's really why we got that album together. We only had a very small amount of money. We had a thousand pounds at the time to make the album, which even then wasn't very much money, certainly with the rates of Abbey Road. So we had to really rehearse and rehearse before we recorded the, the, the songs. Each song was usually done in a three hour session. Sometimes more than one basic recording of the song of, of songs was done in a three hour session. But the fact that the Beatles had just heard Pet Sounds not long before. And Paul uh, and John had heard that, that Brian Wilson had an eight track, you know, this wonderful machine that had eight tracks of recording. And, and they said to the guys at Abbey Road, we have to get an eight track machine in. And they said, there's not one in the country. And then I think my, the story as I heard it was that John Lennon said, well, sort something out. So, you know, over the, the nights, the, the engineers and the boffins there worked out a way of getting more than four tracks on a particular song. So we went in and, and we heard this story and we said, well, we'll have some of that, that'd be brilliant. So <laughs> they sort of groaned. Anyway, they did it because they were lovely guys and great engineers actually. 
Well, Jeff Emmerich was one of them, right? Jeff, Jeff Emmerich, Emmerich was. One was. Of them. And Peter Vince did much of the recording too. Really, and they re- they recorded much of the stuff with the Beatles as well, both of those uh, guys. It wasn't just the four tracks becoming eight tracks. The Beatles actually had left some of their instruments. They had indeed. From those had. sessions on the floor. They had indeed. Yeah. But, you know, just, just to finish that, the, the eight tracks meant, or the seven actually, because it, it worked out being about seven. But it meant that we would record the songs as we'd practiced and practiced. But then it gave us some form of spontaneity in the studio where if one of us had an idea, we could just put it on. And, and it was done very quickly. Like on time of the season, I, I remember... We recorded what we'd practiced, and it sounded pretty good to us. And it sounded, but as we were playing through, I said to Hugh, do you know, Hugh, I can hear going either side of the backbeat. And he said, well, why don't you just go in there and do it and see what it sounds like? I said, okay. And we did it. We went through it once like that and didn't even think about it. And, and yet that was used, and it became quite a signature for the actual song. It's the time of the season. Love runs high in this time. Give it to me easy and let me try with pleasured hands to take you in the sun to promised lands to show you everyone. It's the time of the season for love. I always say it's like being kids in a candy store because. It was the combination of huge preparation, but also an element of spontaneity that we could always use. And so it was the best of both worlds. But you're, you're quite right. They, the, the Beatles had left things like John Lennon's Mellotron in the studio. And I seem to remember an electric harpsichord that we might have used on one or two things. Well, there were lots of percussion instruments as well on the floor, yeah. weren't there? Tambourines and maracas and things like that. It was a real thrill because we were huge Beatles fans. Oh. So... For us to be in the studio just after they left, and the last people that used these instruments were the Beatles. That was, that was really exciting for us. It really was, yeah. Time of the season, you recorded it the same day that it was written. Was that because of the rates of the studio, how much they were charging? You had to, it was the last song written, it's the last song in the sequence on the album. But since you recorded it the same day that it was written, Colin didn't really know the song that well. It, it actually had been written a few days before, but it, it was very quick. You're, you know, you're, you're right in essence. And, and Colin didn't know the song all that well. So when the vocal was going on, it was a, a last minute thing. I shared a flat with Chris White at the time and we had this session coming up and I said, I've got a song that I think would be really good and it sounds really commercial to me. I don't think anyone else thought so, but I did. And we went in there and we recorded it and I had gone through it with Cole, but you only half knew it, Cole, didn't you? Oh, absolutely. And Rob was being very patient and he was leading me from the control room with all the engineers, the rest of the band and everything. So a lot of people in there. And I was in the studio and I've got a big clock in front of me with a red light underneath it and I knew how close we were to running out of studio time I I don't I'm not sure we had any more money and Rod's leading me got more and more tense and it it always made me laugh because it it developed into some quite bad language and when I think back to we were singing it's the time of the season for loving and at that time, we were screaming at one another. <laughs> I know you, and, and you said, listen, if you're so fucking good, you come in here and sing it. I and did. I said, 
I, and I said, oh, come on, Colin, you know, please, let, let's just get this done. Because I don't it think it was quite great. as measured as that, Rod. But no, no, said, it's probably not. You're the bloody lead singer. <laughs> you bloody stand there till you get it right. Well, whatever happened, I mean, it's obviously such an iconic recording. You know, it's interesting that when you hear that song, it evokes a time and a place of so vividly capturing the essence of the late 60s. Uh, were, were current events, Vietnam, things like that, influencing what you were making, what you were writing? Was it subtle, was it overt, or was it not at all? It was It was a general sort of zeitgeist that actually had an effect on what we were both doing, I think, Chris and I. Um, and, uh, you know, we weren't, we weren't naive at all about, you know, love and peace and inverted commas. We really weren't. But at the same time, it was very difficult not to be affected by it. And the fact that for the first time, a generation of people, I, I, I've always felt that, that we were seeing footage coming from Vietnam that was actually showing what was going on to some extent. I mean, not as, as descriptive as, as things are now, but it was showing to some extent what was going on at the time. And so you had a whole generation of young people who were turning away from all that and saying that we're not going to be part of this. This is this is horrendous. You know, there must be another way. And 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 some of that felt very good. So that was part of what was going on. And I know Chris wrote Butcher's Tale, which was a story actually about the First World War which had resonances of all war, really, and what was going on. And, and I'm sure he wouldn't have written that if all those feelings weren't in the air. The butcher, yes, that was my trade, but the king's shilling is now my feet. The butcher, I may as well have stayed for the slaughter that I see. And the preacher in his pulpit sermon So the, the general sort of zeitgeist did have an effect on what we were doing, but we never felt that we were trying to write um, any any sort of songs that were directly um, reflective of that. You know, it wasn't a conscious thing, really. The song becomes such a big hit and the album becomes so iconic. Odyssey and Oracle, obviously the word Odyssey is spelled a certain way in the dictionary, which is not the way it's spelled on the album cover. And Colin, I, I read that for 40 years, you thought it was intentional. I did. Until uh, Rod told you the truth of what really happened. Well, he didn't actually tell me. He told, in a, in a conversation like this, we were doing an interview. And he told the person who was doing the interview that Terry Quirk made a mistake. The, the artist, remember, it wasn't done on a computer. It was a painting. And Terry Quirk... As same as Chris White went to the same school as me, and I'm a very bad speller, and Terry Quirk is obviously the artist, is a very bad speller too. <laughs> so I blame the school, really. Uh, Rod had told me this stra rather strange story, I have to say, about it was intentional. I, I never understood why he told me that. I can understand him telling the media. And then 40 years later, it came out in a conversation. I had to stop the interview, and I said... What? What? You're you're telling me now that 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 was just a genuine mistake. So, yeah, it was it was quite interesting. What was your story, Rod? It was um, it was, that, it was well, very for, unconvincing. Well, for, <laughs> for years, <laughs> for years, I said it was a, a play on words. The word "ode" 
um, and then and then the, the total word Odyssey. It was like you know a, an overall story told in song form. So it's odes and Odyssey. But I mean that's what that's what I said for years and years. The fact was that we'd actually been on tour when Terry had finished the design of the album, and he'd sent it to CBS. And when when we got back from the tour, CBS said. We've got the album cover. We think it's absolutely great. Do you want to come down and approve it? So we went down to approve it. And when we saw it, Chris and I said, well, it's beautiful. We absolutely love it. But Terry spelled, you know, you're going to have to change that letter on there. And they said, oh, no, we can't. It's all gone, you know, it's gone to print and everything. It's all done. And we said, well, why did you invite us down here to give approval? <laughs> but, but that's actually what happened. So there's a book that you guys released in 2017 called The Odyssey, The Zombies in Words and Images. And the people who have been influenced by this album and who contributed to the book, Tom Petty wrote the foreword, Brian Wilson, Carlos Santana, Paul Weller, who has said this album is his favorite album of all time, Graham Nash, Nate Roos, Cage the Elephant, Beach House, you know, Elliot Smith ends up covering... This will be our year, as does OK Go, the Foo Fighters, so many of other people. Obviously, you had no idea at the time that this album was going to be as influential as it has become. We thought we'd lost it, didn't we, Cole? Yeah, I thought I thought it was over. We put the first single out, which was Carousel 44. And we said, we give it one single before we break up. Because Paul Atkinson was getting married and he said, I've got no money. And, and, and Chris and I were fine because we were getting our songwriting royalties. And we later found out that we usually had a hit somewhere in the world that we didn't know about. But at the time, that sort of news didn't percolate very quickly. I mean, nowadays you can have a hit in, in um, Mozambique and you'll know within a couple of hours because of, you know, because of media, social media, etc. But in those days, you, it took forever to come through. But I, I think we've, we've, we felt really that we were going through we were failures if you like it's a bit of a strong word but we weren't being successful let's say that and we were based very much in the uk weren't we because yes yeah, so people we were in those days the, the uk yeah. charts and the american charts yeah. but the irony is what rod has just said that actually we always had a hit record somewhere it's just that we didn't know about it till years later um, and we didn't get paid as far as artists were concerned, very much, but the, but the writers did. So Chris and I were okay. Right, right. So the band ended up breaking up before the album really went out on its journey, as it was, as it, on its odyssey, as as it was. And Colin, you had to go get a job. Uh, well, all three of the non-writers did. I know people always talk about me getting a job and and sometimes it goes down the road of how could you want to do insurance instead of music but i just i took the first job i could get because i was broke paul worked for a computer firm and hugh sold cars for a time they came back to the music business we all did when you were working in the insurance company at sun alliance i love the story that you worked in the burglary department and you had a boss with a very memorable name I heard an interview that you did where you said your boss's name was Mr. Smelly. Actually, sorry, he wasn't my immediate boss. He was he was higher being smelly. <laughs> Very much higher. Yes, he was higher than my immediate boss. I did have a boss called Mr. Smelly. 
And in a very, it was a very formal office. And he used to call me and he used to say, smelly here. <laughs> <laughs> and I used to nearly fall on the floor. No, that's true. Um, and, you know, I walked into the burglary department and I've got to say that subconsciously I was wondering if we were selling burglaries. I've never heard of a burglary department, but I guess, I mean, I never really knew what was going on, but I think we were insuring against burglaries, but it seems such an unlikely place to work. And I, I stayed there for a few months and very clear. I've always been very clever with money. And uh, I worked out that with the miserly, salary that I was getting there, by the time you paid my train fare and a little bit of rent and a few other bits and bobs, I was actually working at a loss. So I, my whole insurance career, short as it was, was all a bit of a mistake, really. I but think. you have to build in the satisfaction you were getting out of the work, Cole. Of course. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, <laughs> I did feel it was a vocation at the time. One thing that I didn't realize until really, you know, brushing up on, on my history of you guys was Al Cooper's role in the album Becoming a Hit in America. You want to talk about that? Absolutely, Absolutely essential. Yeah. I mean, without Al, it wouldn't have happened because he came over here and he picked up 250 albums, was it called? Something like that. A lot. Uh, because he just joined. You know, he was the really hot producer at the time. And he just joined under Clive Davis, I think. He came over here, picked up all these English albums. And, he, and as he wrote on the back, this was like a rose amongst thorns, he said. And he went to Clive Davis and said, there is one album that we have to put out. Uh, he said, and I don't care who's got it. He said, you've got to pay whatever it takes to get this album and put it out. And Clive Davis said, well, actually, we've got it, but we've passed on it. And Alan said, well, you've, you've, you've got to put it out. And so reluctantly at the time, I think CBS did put the album out. And what was the first single they put out? It was Butcher's Tale. And Butcher's Tale is one of my favourite tracks on the album, but it's never a single. It, it really isn't. And, and, and I think Al was beside himself, really. And I think he always wanted Time of the Season to go out. But it didn't come out until 18 months later. It was the last gasp release of, of a single. And the band had, had long been broken up by then. By 18 months and, later, and, yeah. And since you, like you said, there is no social media, you had no idea that somewhere in a land called Boise, Idaho, yeah, literally, absolutely. that a DJ started playing Time of the Season. And, the, and the whole climate of, of record companies and everything and, and radio was so different at the time that things could come out and one guy could start playing it. And in a very slow way, like a stone in a pond, the ripples would gradually work their way out and they would gather momentum and it took six months for that record to go up the charts apparently you know from the time it was very very low maybe under the under the hundred i don't know but it you know eventually climbed to again number one in cashbox and um just under that in billboard as well it took forever and, and we didn't know about it absolutely it wasn't until our gallico our publisher phoned up and said look guys looks like we're getting a really big hit here and we couldn't believe it but it felt wonderful because it felt like complete bunts. It felt like we've got no responsibilities. Chris and I had already formed a production company with CBS and we were about to produce Colin's one year album. And also Argent had formed and we were just about to release the first Argent album that we were very proud of. So we thought this is fantastic because it makes getting a proper deal an easy thing to do because we're hit producers, you know, we've got the number one single. And it, it felt like a good thing um, to me, you know, but then 
I, I think I've always been a glass half full, whereas Cole's often often been a glass <laughs> half empty. <haven't> you, Cole? <laughs> so, so there was no interest in reforming the band to take advantage of the hit, no. right? None. Because we were so, you know, we've always been driven by enthusiasm, as we still are now. It felt entirely wrong to just get back together again and throw away the last 18 months that we were proud of the progress that we'd made in those 18 months. We were proud of the first album. We, we were really, really looking forward to recording Colin in the way we felt he should be recorded as a solo artist. And so we were full of these dreams and this energy for wanting to continue to create. And so the last thing we ever thought about doing was was just to cash in, if you like. So that led to the rise of the fake zombies who started touring because without social media, nobody knew what the band looked like. So there were some, some rather uh, dodgy promoters in America who started putting bands together, calling them the zombies. And one of them later became two-thirds of ZZ Top. Is that right? It's true. Yeah, one of the bands had two of ZZ Top in the... Uh, <laughs> the fake zombies. I know. And also one of the uh, managers who was putting... I don't know if it was... Because there were two or three, as you rightly said. I don't know if it's the one that the ZZ Top guys were in, but one of the managers was talking to Rolling Stone I'm um, trying to justify the version of the zombies. And he said, well, you know, we want to honour the zombies' music, especially because the lead singer was killed in a car crash. And... <laughs> <laughs> it's very strange to read that when I was when I was reading that I, I certainly did feel a very strange feeling. Well, so so many strange things happened. Colin, tell everybody who Neil MacArthur is. Well, <laughs> when I think it was probably when Time of the Season first started to get a little bit of success, a lot of people called me in the burglary department, apart from Mr. Smelly this is. Um, <laughs> with a view to me recording again. And one of them was a guy called Mike Hurst, who'd recorded the very early Cat Stevens records. So um, uh, Matthew and Son, I'm going to get me a gun. I love my dog. But they were great records. And he was an incredible enthusiast, Mike Hurst. And, you know, I was really sad when the zombies finished. And I wasn't absolutely sure I wanted to get back into the music business. It had been a real blow. But he convinced me to go from the burglary department to, in the evenings, to Olympic Studio, which, which is where the Stones were often recording. And he literally put some tracks together and he had this idea of re-recording She's Not There. Now, I wasn't too sure about that at the time and I'm even less sure about it now. It seems a very strange thing to do. And he also suggested that I change my name and it was a very arbitrary name. It was going to be James MacArthur and then the record company... <laughs> The record company <laughs> sent a telegram or whatever they did in those days and said, well, it can't be James MacArthur's last minute this was because there's an actor in Hawaii Five-O called James MacArthur. So it's got to be something else. And that's how I became Neil MacArthur. J James MacArthur from Hawaii Five-O's mother was Helen Hayes, by the way. Oh, right. you want to go down a trivia rabbit hole. Yes. But ironically, the Neil MacArthur version of She's Not There became a top 20 hit in the UK. And we were talking before we went live earlier that the Neil MacArthur version of She's Not There was synced in the season finale of season three of The Crown with Princess Margaret, you know, having a little bit of, of fun on an island. And that is the song in the background. 
in an odd case of art imitating life, didn't the real Colin Blunstone meet the real Princess Margaret? He did, as a matter of interest. We played um, a charity show. This is with my solo band. We played a charity show at the Hammersmith Odeon with Donovan and, and some other acts. I was there and, that night watching it, yeah. Were you? <laughs> yeah. And, um, <laughs> and afterwards, there were drinks for the for the celebrities who who you know princess margaret and her entourage and for the uh, and for the bands and i was presented to her and then i i thought that was it and i went over into a corner by the bar and they didn't have any more glasses and so i was just drinking a beer uh, you know out of a bottle and i got a tap on the shoulder and it was one of her sidekicks saying her royal majesty would like to speak to you again and so I trotted over. I don't know if I think I put my beer bottle down at that point. And I trotted over and uh, I was talking to her for ages. She was absolutely charming. I, it, was, it was really interesting. If only I could have said, Neil, I'm Neil MacArthur. And in the <laughs> years to come, I'm going to be singing over you on your, on your island. But I mean, I didn't know what was going to happen at that time. She, she but, gave you her bag, didn't she, to look after? Well, no, well, what happened was, I think she wanted a cigarette. I mean, these are just silly things, but I don't talk to princesses and things very often. <laughs> she wanted a cigarette and her bag was on a table a few feet away. So she walked over to it. And I didn't know whether I was supposed to follow or not. It's, you know, what do you do? And so she went like this to me. And I went over and she opened this little bag and I couldn't help myself. I had to look in to see. I thought there might be a gun or something in there. But it was just mostly just cigarettes. And then that <laughs> awful moment happens. She took a cigarette out and put it in her toilet. I've never smoked. And I thought... Oh my God! I can't light the cigarette. But the minute she got the minute she got the cigarette up there, there were there was sort of a a circle of people that were with her, and a guy a was there lighters. with a gold cigarette lighter lighting her cigarette, and so. Amazing the, dra stories. the drama passed. So, so many amazing stories. We're running a little tight on time, but obviously we'd be remiss, Rod, not to talk about Argent, the band you formed that took your last name after the zombies broke up. You and Chris White were still involved together, even though Chris White was not a member of Argent. Talk about the inspiration for Hold Your Head Up. Well, Hold Your Head Up was basically, Chris and I shared a, a flat basically, together. And we used to play our ideas to each other. And Chris played me Hold Your Head Up one day. And I thought it sounded really, really good. In terms of the guitar riff and the words and the main melody, the, the song is Chris's, really. As always, we both contributed a huge amount to each other's arrangements and the way the songs will be formed and how they will come together. And I had a lot to do with that. But I, I have to say that, basically, though, you know, the song... The words, the story were Chris's and the guitar riff was, was Chris's as well. But it came about because in a, an early form of Argent, because um, Chris was co-producer with me, we were playing a version of Time of the Season. And it was a very long version. It was in a club where we were, we were getting the band together. We were doing six shows a night in, in Germany, in Munich. And we went into a riff that we'd never gone into before. And that became the basic riff of Hold Your Head Up. And Chris heard this and wanted to form a song around it. And, and that was the genesis of the song. It came from that, that improvisation that we were doing. So there is um, a, a direct link 
from time of the season, strange, right. in a strange way, right. to hold your head up. Which right. I love. I love the fact that there is that link. But you are not singing lead on Hold Your Head Up. No, Russ that's, Ballard that's Russ Ballard, yeah. I love Russ's voice. Russ's voice was, you know, particularly when he was younger, it was, it was, it was really heavenly because he had a lot of feel, he had a lot of power in his voice, but when he sang softly as well, it could be absolutely beautiful. I loved the first album that we did. And uh, the first two albums actually are my favorite Argent albums before we did uh, Hold Your Head, hold up, your head right. up. But um, I always felt that we were recording at a new studio and, and we always felt the, the sound was a little bit, it could have been bigger and stronger. And that's why we moved to Abbey Road again. And that's when we recorded Hold Your Head Up. Well, the thing about Russ is Russ is not a household name, but he, he's a little bit unsung, but he's a great songwriter too. Obviously, mm. he wrote God Gave Rock and Roll to You mm-hmm. for Argent, which was later covered famously by Kiss. He wrote Liar yep. on the first Argent album, which would later be a hit for Three Dog Night. And ironically, you know, trying to put like two and two together with all this stuff, you know, Santana, who had the massive hit with the cover of She's Not There, also later had a hit with Russ's song Winning. Yeah. So, you know, it's like very, very small circle. A family, really. Yeah. Yeah. We've always felt like that. And we've always kept, I mean, Colin uh, and I, for a long time, um, we we formed a friendship when we were in our in our earliest days and that friendship has remained but there was a long period where our careers diverged but we always mm. kept in touch with each other and we always felt um you know i would often go and sing harmonies on your album albums colin wouldn't i yeah yeah well um, actually i mean you produce some of them as well yeah 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 colin You've got one of the great rock and roll voices of all time. I remember being a kid ravenously devouring any album I could find when I was 15, 16 years old and listening to an Alan Parsons Project album, Eye in the Sky and hearing Old and Wise with your vocal on it. And, you know, to this day, it's just, you know, it's it's peerless. Magical, yeah. Well, I mean, it's a beautiful, it's an Eric Wolfson song. It is a beautiful song. And I remember being in Abbey Road with Eric and Alan Parsons. And I was leaving at the same time as Eric was. And we walked into, he said, I want to play you this song. And we walked into Studio Three, the same studio we recorded Time of the Season in. And he just sat down at the piano and he played me that song in its entirety. And he had a really good voice, Eric. And uh, it was absolutely beautiful. And he said, well, we'd like you to sing it. And I was just, I was just thrilled to get involved. Wow. Rod, um, you became a session player after coming off the road in 75. You play, you're playing piano on Who Are You by The Who. Yeah, um, um, I was asked, I'd just done an album for Roger Daltrey called One of the Boys, which strangely enough, Colin had contributed a song to, hadn't you, Colin? I had, yeah. 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 Um, Small world. And and, uh, what was your song called? Single Man's Dilemma, but you're right. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, uh, Roger asked me if I would, uh, he had a word with Pete and they asked me to play on the Who's album. There was a month put aside for the Who's album. And I have to say that they recorded, when they were actually recording, it was all done really quickly. It was great. 
But um, I think they were going through a lot of changes at the time and they had a lot of meetings um, with management and, and we, w- we would arrive um, at Ramport Studios and then I'd, I'd be sitting there often for most of the day with nothing happening because they were in their meetings, etc., etc. So by the time that month was up, I'd actually only done three tracks. I'd done Who Are You, Love Is Coming Down, that I'm not credited on, but I, that's me playing piano on that, and a John Entwistle song uh, as well. And then I said to Pete, I've got to leave because I'm, I'm committed to doing an album with Gary Moore, John Heisman and Barbara Thompson and Julian Lloyd Webber called Variations, which actually came out and was a number one album in the UK. Pete said, well, which album would you rather be on? I said, well, listen, it's absolutely nothing to do with that. I, I, you know, I'm committed to do that. I've got to do it. And so I only played on those three tracks in the end, but it was great playing with them. And they are one of the very great bands, I think. What an iconic record of yeah. Who Are You? Everybody knows that record and everybody knows the piano part in that record. Absolutely. So, I mean, that was it was lovely to actually have done that. Yeah. So as we finish up, obviously everyone is looking forward to the September Abbey Road reunion of the live stream of the zombies. So we'll all be tuning into that. But it's impossible to overstate the influence of the band. I'd like to close with a quote from Tom Petty, who said, I remember first hearing She's Not There on the radio in my bedroom. So ethereal, so spooky. The DJ said it was the zombies from England. Of course, I thought, this is exactly what a zombie rock group would sound like. <laughs> he, he was such a dear guy. And, and we got to know him in, in the year before his death really well, didn't we, Cole? Absolutely, yeah. Uh, and I'm so glad that we actually did because it, 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 was, it was great that we managed to do that. Well, in 2019, the Zombies were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. You also co-headlined a tour that year with Brian Wilson from the Beach Boys called Something Great from 68, where you played Odyssey and Oracle in its entirety. We did. It was great. It was fantastic. Uh, we all love Brian Wilson. And he has a superb band, absolutely wonderful band. It was a and thrill. It was a great. A, a couple of times, they, they got us to play. We actually played... God only knows with them, didn't we? And, wow. and Brian and Brian let Colin sing it and me play piano on it. Yeah. So How about that? That was that really, was really lovely. And on the last night, they they, you know, we were we were magically enjoying enjoying the last night. And the band was sounding great and the the, the crowd were going wild. And they all went like that to us. And and we went on stage and we joined them for the last five songs, Cole, was it? Mm. And wow. it was just absolutely you know, and I thought well, you know, how fantastic to be at this stage in our careers or at this age and, and, and feeling this joy and energy. And, you know, for sure, it's the most amazing. Re- it's the most rejuvenating thing. I don't think any other career can have that sort of rejuvenating effect. In, in not not even working for Mr. Smelly at the insurance company. Well, maybe mm-hmm. there are exceptions. But. <laughs> <laughs> well, guys, once, once this pandemic is, is behind us, you know, we're going we're gonna to go out and we're going to look for the zombies touring and obviously all tuning in to uh, the live stream on September 18th from Abbey Road. Really, really appreciate the time, Rod and, and Colin. Thank you so much. Thank, thank you, Pete. You so Thanks, much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure.
Thanks a lot to Rod Argent and Colin Blundstone of The Zombies for taking time to talk with us on the podcast this week. The Zombies are still recording and still touring. Many of the dates that were initially postponed by the pandemic have been rescheduled and are listed on the band's website, thezombiesmusic.com. Be sure to catch their worldwide live streaming event on September 18th when the Zombies perform live from Studio 2 at the world-famous Abbey Road Studios in London. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time for another episode of Rock and Roll High School. Rock and Roll High School is a presentation of Pure Tone Music in association with Warner Music. Produced by Pete Ganbard, with assistance from Craig Rosen, Ron Robinson, Joe Pomerico, Kelly Sayer, Chris Costello, Avery Landau, and Rich Mahan. Please visit our website at rockschoolpodcast.com for more info on past and future shows. All rights reserved. Rock, 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 rock on.